This is Duke University. My name is Greg Dees, and I'm the director of the Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship here at the Fuqua School of Business. And it's my distinct honor today to introduce our annual Leader in Social Entrepreneurship Award winner. And this year, the students, by popular demand and I think by great wisdom, uh, chose Dr. Muhammad Yunus uh, from Grameen Bank. Now, many of you, if you're here, know something about the Grameen Bank story and about Dr. Yunus, but let me fill in some of the details in case there are a few folks here who haven't heard the story. Dr. Yunus was born in Chittagong in Bangladesh, educated there at Chittagong University, uh, came to the U.S. on a Fulbright scholarship to study at Vanderbilt Economics, has his Ph.D. in economics, returned to Chittagong to serve on the faculty of the university there. For most folks, that would be kind of the end of the story. He would teach his career out, have wonderful students who adored him, um, and go gracefully into retirement. But that wasn't enough for Dr. Yunus. In the mid-70s, he was troubled deeply, and he's troubled, I'm sure, before that, by the poverty in Bangladesh, and particularly in rural areas among women and the landless uh, poor, and decided that he would break with the traditional classroom method and actually get his students and himself out into the rural villages to talk with and listen to the people in those villages who were suffering from poverty in hopes that they could come up with some ideas for breaking this terrible cycle for helping people get out of poverty. And out of that process came an idea, an idea for microenterprise lending built around peer groups, significant innovation in this field, to provide credit to a market that didn't have easy access to credit, uh, except through very high-cost money lenders locally. This was a powerful innovation. Those of you who know the story know that it grew rapidly. Throughout the 80s and the early 90s, Grameen Bank went from an idea, and I guess in the late 70s it was the idea, to a bank with over 1,000 branches in Bangladesh, a bank serving some 37,000 villages. The last time I looked, over 2 million borrowers, and maybe up to 3 million now. It's kind of like that McDonald's <laughs> sign. I think it just keeps rolling and rolling every time I go to the website. Um, I'm amazed. This has been an incredible, incredible success story. Um, those of you who'd like to read more about it, by the way, I will encourage you to, to take a look at Dr. Yunus's book, Banker to the Poor. This is his autobiography, and I hope just the first segment in that autobiography, because this was published in 1999. Many things have happened since then, and we're, many of us are eagerly looking forward to the next uh, 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 volume that comes out, but this is about micro-lending and the battle against world, world poverty. But again, starting a bank, growing a bank wasn't enough. Dr. Yunus was serious about inspiring others to follow his lead. Inside and outside of Bangladesh, it's rare that a business person will encourage his or her own competition. 
In this case, Dr. Yunus was happy to see other groups get into the business of microenterprise lending. And now there are numerous other groups in Bangladesh doing this work, inspired by, instructed by, and, and in many ways supported by uh, Grameen. The inspiration has gone outside Bangladesh, as many of you know. There's a microenterprise, microcredit industry that's grown up worldwide, uh, largely inspired by and led by Grameen Bank. Uh, replications happening in developing countries and developed countries um, all around the world. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, you can, there's plenty to learn about this, and, and those of you who are interested in that might check into the Grameen Foundation USA, which is a group that helps support this kind of work around the world, which is an attempt to replicate uh, the Grameen Bank. Um, Again, if you were just thinking about the magnitude of his impact, of the innovation, it's enormous, rippling through this new industry. But starting a new industry, again, wasn't enough. If you take a look at Grameen, you'll find that the bank is just the centerpiece to a family of organizations, a family that numbers something like two dozen by now, something in that range. Um, this is a family of organizations that does everything from fisheries to education, from energy to telecommunications, from software to knitwear, a wide variety of ventures. Muhammad Yunus is clearly a serial entrepreneur and a serial <laughs> social entrepreneur. So a perfect fit for this award. I couldn't imagine a better choice. Now, we were both at Oxford last week at a World Summit on Social Entrepreneurship sponsored by the brand new Skoll Foundation, Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Oxford. A center supported by the Skoll Foundation. Jeffrey Skoll was one of the eBay founders who's now passionate about spreading the message of social entrepreneurship. And I don't know if Dr. Yunus uh, saw this, but one of the final presentations, and he may have missed it, was by Pamela Hartigan, who runs the so the Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship in Switzerland. Pamela was defining social entrepreneur and she did it uh, with pictures. Better than a lot of us put up our bullet points and walk through those, that standard uh, business school fair, but she decided to do it with photographs. First photograph she put up was Richard Branson, founder of the Virgin Group, which is Virgin Atlantic Airways, Virgin Mega Stores. There's a Virgin Mobile Telecommunications, a serial entrepreneur, and certainly one of the most famous in the UK. Perfect example to start off with. She then had a plus sign and put up a picture of Mother Teresa. <laughs> so you get this interesting juxtaposition and combination. Then came the equal sign, and of course the picture she put up after that was of Dr. Eunice. <laughs> which is a wonderful combination of economic expertise, business savvy, passion for solving social problems and doing it in creative ways. We are extremely honored to have with us today Dr. Muhammad Yunus. I welcome him to the Fuqua School and I will turn it over to him for his remarks. Dr. Yunus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I like the description, software to knitwear <laughs> and serial entrepreneur. I'm very delighted to be here. 
It was uh, insistence of Professor D that I must come. I'm very happy that I could come. And I'm happy because I spent a lot of time of my life very near to this campus. It was in Nashville, Tennessee, Vanderbilt. And in all, I spent a total of seven years in Nashville. First part as a student at Vanderbilt, and second part as a teacher in Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro. And we would travel around these regions quite a bit. So coming back here again, take me back to the 60s and 70s where I spent this time. Bangladesh became an independent country in 1971 after a terrible liberation war and a lot of devastation, a lot of bloodshed. And I was teaching at Murfreesboro. So as soon as Bangladesh became independent, I decided to quit my job and go back and participate in the rehabilitation and the rebuilding of the country. We were very excited that Bangladesh became an independent country. And going through the euphoria, euphoria to build a new nation in the images of your dreams. But as days went by, as it happens in many, many other cases of independence and liberation wars, those dreams quickly turn into nightmares. Things didn't improve. They're fast deteriorating. I was teaching in a brand new university, Chittagong University. And by 1974, we had a terrible famine in the country. You teach elegant theories in the classroom, telling your students how to handle economic problems, how to resolve all those, how to bring development. And you walk out of the classroom, you see people waiting to die of hunger, not for any disease or anything, just not having enough to eat. So, like any young person, I got very frustrated. And I wanted to do something, I don't know what. So luckily for me, Chittagong University is located right in the rural area. It's not an urban campus. I could walk out of the campus line and be in the century, century old village. And I decided that even if the subject I teach doesn't help me in addressing anything that I need to do in a situation like that, but as a human being, I can always reach out to another human being and share the agony, share the misery of another person. So that's what I decided to do. And I thought, if I can be of any use to one single person, even for a day, that would be my lucky day. 
I thought my day is well spent. So I continued to do that. I was feeling happy that I could at least do something to make life a little bit easier for another person. As I was doing it, something came on repeatedly. And I started getting interested in it because it is so close, so repetitive. People suffering for not having tiny little money in their hand. They have to go to the money lender, loan sharks, to take that money. And money lender imposed all kinds of terrible conditionalities. I don't want to go into details, but this is a subject I never studied in my classroom. I had no idea. So I went ahead, took a student of mine, and said, let's go around and make a list of these people, how much money each one of them had to borrow, and how many they are. It took us about a week to go around and finally make a list. The list contained 42 names, and total money they needed was $27. And what a shock to someone who has been teaching in the classroom how to improve the condition of the country, economic situation of the country, through five-year development plans, big projects, millions of dollars, billions of dollars, had no idea. A few years from that classroom, people are suffering not for millions of dollars, just for a few pennies. And there's nothing the society has done to make this available. So it goes on in this old primitive way that we have heard in the histories, in the, in the literature, in the plays, in the novels, in the everything how moneylenders want their pound of flesh. And it continues. My first response was to reach out to my pocket and bring out the money and tell my student, let's go ahead and give it to them and let them get out of the clutches of the moneylenders. And I did. But I didn't realize what would be the reaction until I saw it the next day and the next day. Everybody looked at me as if I was some God-sent person or something, some, did some miracle in that village. I was asking myself, what did I do? Gave these few taka to people as a loan. I told them this is a loan, this is not a charity. You have to give it back. Whenever you are ready to give it back, you give it back to me. Seeing this reaction, a thought came to my mind. If you can make so many people so happy with a, such a small amount of money, why shouldn't you do more of it? So that thought haunted me. And I was desperate to do more of it. But how do I do it? give more money from my pocket or do something else. Finally, I came up with an idea. Why don't they link them up with a bank? Bank located right in the campus. It's a bank's job to lend money to people. That's what the banks are created for. 
I went to the bank, talked to the manager, proposed to him that he lend money to the poor people in the village. He almost fell from the sky. <laughs> he said, are you crazy or something? Bank cannot lend money to the poor people. I said, why not? Because they're not creditworthy. I said, what does it mean? He said, they cannot pay back. I said, how do you know? He has no answer. He said, everybody knows that. I said, but I don't know. <laughs> so it became a funny conversation. He will not give up his position, and I will not give up my inquiry. And it was not resolved. He gave me thousand and one way to explain that how it's impossible to lend money to poor people. And I kept harping on the idea that you must do it to find it out rather than guessing it. Anyway, he asked me to see his senior bosses in the hierarchy and maybe they can do something, but rules do not permit me to do anything. So I took his advice. I went around in the hierarchy of the banking system, proposed the same thing. Everybody gave me the same answer. After several months of running around, I came up with an idea, which I learned from them, from their language. I offered myself as a guarantor. I said, I'll be the guarantor. I take the risk and you give the money. I'll sign any paper you give in front of me. It took another two months after lots of writing, lots of correspondence, back and forth. Finally, they agreed to accept me as a guarantor. So I happily took that opportunity, took money from the bank, signed all the papers, gave it to people. And the bank manager said, this is the last time you see this money, because this money is not going to come back. Say goodbye to it. <clears throat> I said, I'll take my chance. I don't know. But I can try. And I tried. It worked. Absolutely, perfectly. I was totally delighted that it worked so well. Everybody paid me every penny of it. In my excitement, I told the manager, look, all the money came back. He paid no attention whatsoever. He said, one professor in one village can do all kinds of miracles. It makes no difference whatsoever for the rest of the world. So I said, what should I do? He said, do it in two villages, and I'll find out. I said, he may be right. I'll do it in two villages. So I went ahead, tried it in two villages. It worked again perfectly. This time he says, well, one village and two villages, same thing. <laughs> what I really meant, several villages. I said, like what? Maybe five villages. I said, let me try. So I can do it in five villages. It works perfectly. He raises the number again. So it became a game between me and the bank manager. Every time it becomes successful, he raises the number. After we have done it, 50 villages, 100 villages, Still, he doesn't change his mind. Then I realized that if I do it for the whole world, he will not change his mind. <laughs> because his mind is made. It's impossible to unmake it. So I said, let's not try through this bank. The same story. Why don't we create a separate bank? That's when my struggle began to create a new bank. 
And government was not too happy when I proposed to them that they permit me to keep, create a bank. And I was insisting that this bank, not only I need the permission, I need a separate law. Because I was insisting that if I create a new bank with, under the existing law, sooner or later I will become the same animal as everybody else. So I need a new framework. That becomes a very sticky point for the government. Finally, in 1983, we got it. We became a bank. And from then on, it's excitement after excitement. We continued to expand and expand and expand. People kept saying, well, it's, it's possible for something new, something innovative to run for a small area and do it good because very dedicated, committed people. But if you try to scale it up, it falls apart. We said, no, not with Grameen Bank. This is something else. The power is not in the organization, power is in the people. They make the difference. All we need to do is to bring the facility to them. So we became very quickly a nationwide organization. Then we got into involved with many other things. Today, with Grameen Bank, we have 3.2 million borrowers, 95% women, and we look for the poorest women when they join Grameen Bank. And we have very strict procedures how to select a person who would be a poor person, all the indications what must be present. And then, when for the first time she takes a loan, it's not easy for a poor person, poor woman, to decide to take a loan. We had to struggle hard to bring women into the bank because they always said, no, don't give the money to me, give it to my husband because I never touch money in my life. And almost she's telling the truth because she's nowhere in the picture when the money transaction takes place. It's the husband who earns the bread, and it's the husband who goes to the market. She has no contact with it. So anyway, we have gone through that. We have finally succeeded in getting to 95% today, women. Repayment rate always been very, very satisfactory. 99% repayment. And the critical feature of Grameen Bank is that it doesn't require any collateral. No collateral, no legal instrument. So all this money that we transact, when we give a loan, there is no paper, no legal instrument where both parties signed, where the agreement is not kept. The bank can go to the court and get the money back. It's not that kind of bank. Because it's useless to have all those documents. Because our loan size, when a borrower joins Grameen Bank for the first time, it would be usually $30, $35. loan, if it doesn't get paid back, you don't want to go to a lawyer. <laughs> so forget about that. So we forgot about all the paperwork which is needed for this. So it's absolutely free from any kind of legal instrument. Come, bankers get very scared when we tell them that we don't have legal instrument. 
Over years, we have given more than four billion US dollars worth of money in Bangladesh without any legal instrument. This year will be about half a billion dollars. One year alone, the loan will give out. No legal paper. And they get scared because they ask me, can you sleep peacefully? All those dollars worth of money going out and expect to come back, will it come back? If it doesn't come back, what happens? I said, I sleep very peacefully because I know every penny will come back because it has been doing that for the last 28 years. I had no problem. With all your legal instruments, you have the problem because people don't pay you back. And over years, what we tried to do is to bring this credit facility so that they can create self-employment. You see, in economic literature, only employment they tell us is about wage employment. And wage employment is something which is not easy in a country like Bangladesh to come by for millions and millions of people seeking jobs. The quickest way to create income is to create self-employment. And this credit, this loan, $30, $35, immediately, instantaneously creates a self-employment. You do whatever you know what to do. And by looking at it again and again for years and years, I see how creative the people are. This is another problem with perception, like the mindset of the banker that I was t telling. It's not simply a bank manager in Bangladesh. It's a mindset of the total people of the world. Once this is made, it's very difficult to unmake it. And the rest of the story is with your given mindset, you try to create the world the way you think it should be, rather than trying to find out the way it is. And in creating mindset, education system, particularly universities, play a very important role. I get very nervous when it comes to the university education. What kind of mindset they are coming out with. Because students turn to become the mini image of their professors. The way they think, the way they argue. And the rest of your life you argue the same way your teacher argued. If somebody says something else, you get mad at him. The way your teacher got mad at you when you are good separately, differently. So how to have this so that you remain yourself and open. At the same time, you gather knowledge, understanding. Anyway, so enormous capacity in the people. So I came to the conclusion, and I believe in it now, almost like a fate. Every human being is born with unlimited potential, unlimited capacity to create. There's no difference between a child born in a poor family in Bangladesh or a child born in the richest family in the world. Human quality-wise, they have the same. But society plays the trick. Some get the opportunity to unleash the energy, unleash the creativity, and others don't. And those people who never got the opportunity to unleash their energy and their ingenuity, we look at them with pity. 
They are poor people, illiterate, incapable, unskilled. It's not their fault. Poverty is not created by the poor people. Poverty is created by the system, by the institutions that we have built, by the policies that we pursue, by the concepts we design in our textbooks. That's what created poverty. So when people ask how to get out of poverty, it's very simple. Redesign your institutions. Redesign your policies. Redesign your concepts. There won't be anybody left to be a poor person. People are able to take care of themselves. Simply, they are not allowed to. I give example of bonsai, the little plants that you grow in a little flower pot. You plant the seed of the tallest tree in the forest, the best seed possible, in a small flower pot. How tall the tree would be? Two feet, 16 inches, or whatever. Nothing more than that. But it will look exactly like the tall tree that you saw in the forest, but only smaller version, mini version. Anything wrong with the seed? No, this was the best seed possible we gathered. What's wrong then? The wrong is the base. So I keep repeating that the poor people are the bonsai people. Society never allowed them the base to grow tall, as tall as everybody else. So they remain a mini version of their potential height potential personality. So we have to go back and create that base for them. And that's where microcredit is one example. More than half the population of the world do not qualify to take a loan from a bank, conventional banks. And they will give you a good, example, a good explanation for that, like, my branch manager gave all the explanations, same explanations. They are not creditworthy. Now after all these years of demonstration, this would be very difficult for them to explain away. You'll be amazed how many people in North Carolina, for example, do not qualify to take a bank loan. Is it their fault or is it the institution's fault? And I always stand up, I say, there's nothing wrong with people. Institutions are built to serve the people. People are not born to serve institutions. And I took one step more, I kept saying that credit should be accepted as a human right, so that we don't go on debating about this issue. And it's our job is to create institutions to make that happen. And luckily, for us, we saw that it works so wonderfully. In our case, microcredit. Now we cannot deny anybody the access to financial services to a poor person. Grameen Bank is owned by the borrowers. And people kept saying, well, it's good, microcredit helps poor people. I'll stop very soon. 
it helps poor people, but it cannot reach out to the poorest people. We have been always serving the poorest people, but they will always make this argument. This goes on. It cannot serve the poorest people. So this year, we decided to do something dramatic. We said, OK, they don't see it. Let them show us. Show them. We'll show them. So this year, what we are doing, we are taking in exclusively beggars into Grameen Bank. Said, you cannot be poorer than beggars. Not a few, not a hundred, not a couple of hundred. Thousands and thousands. And it's a very simple idea. We did that before, but nobody noticed it. So we want to make it noticeable so that this argument doesn't exist anymore. We go to a woman who does the begging. You know, a woman goes house to house, knocks at the door, and people will give them a handful of rice, because in Bangladesh, rice is a staple. You collect this handfuls of rice, go around, and at the end of the day, you get one kilogram, two kilogram of rice. And that becomes your daily food. And you survive for another day. And we sit down with the woman and said, well, you have been doing it for many, many years. It's been tough life. What we would like to suggest, would you like to carry some merchandise with you when you go door to door? <laughs> You're going there anyway. <laughs> this is your profession, your livelihood. All I'm suggesting, think about it. If you can take something with you, toys, cookies, lodgences, sweets, for kids, for the women in the family, or whoever. And if they buy, you make money. If they don't buy, think of something. Ask them some. What would they like to bring to them? Bring them the same thing they want next day. Because one thing in, in Bangladesh, women don't go out to the market. So they have an advantage. She can shuttle between the market and the house. She can actually bring things which the families want. Husbands always forget. You ask for something, he comes home. <laughs> ah, I forgot. <laughs> now she has an agent here, comes to her door. She can say, bring me this. She brings and makes money. And it immediately caught imagination of people. And they're going around not doing that. Last I heard, there are 5,000 plus beggars who are already in Grameen Bank. And sooner or later, I'm sure many of them will get out of begging, which is their lifelong livelihood activity. To bring one person out of begging itself is a great satisfaction to see that I have at least saved a person from the humiliation of going door to door and beg and survive. Now she runs a business. And there are beggars who are who lost legs, arms, or whatever, or blind. And usually they will sit under a tree and beg with a beggar's plate in front of them. We go and talk to him and talk to her. Well, you are here begging. It's a tough life. But this, what you can do, you may think if you put some bananas, some cookies, some Coke bottles, if people can buy from you. 
and then you are in business. Since your location for you, from your consideration must be a strategic position because you <laughs> chose the place where you get good attention from people. So this is, a, this is your natural uh, selection. You did it. All we are saying that can you do that? And we are linking beggars with the best shop in the market, saying that, well, she's our borrower, she's our member. And we stand guarantee for her for, say, $50. And anything she wants from your market, uh, from your uh, shop, up to the limit of $50, you can give it to her. Don't worry whether she pays back or not. We stand guarantee. And all she does, she picks up the things she needs and takes it to the village and sells. Unsold goods are returned. Sold goods are settled. Accounts <coughs> are settled. Nice. If she carries some saris, saris the women what wear, and women love saris, buy new saris. So she will take five saris and one sari she liked, one woman liked, and said, I like the design, everything, but can you bring me in deep green? So next day she brings her a deep green, and the deal is made, and business. And Grameen Bank has not spent a penny on her, because all it did is to stand guarantee that nothing else. The rest of the business is between the shop and the village. So this is one working very well. I hope we can stop that. And say, it is not sustainable. We are 28 years now in business. Ever since Grameen Bank became a bank, only in the early three years it had small losses. Ever since we made profit. Last year, we had over $11 million in profit in Grameen Bank. We give housing loans. We give student loans. Many of the children of Grameen families are now reaching out for higher education. These are all illiterate families. Their parents don't read, don't write. But we insisted right from the beginning, children should be encouraged to go to school. Today, 100% of the children of Grameen families are in school. But the new news is, not only they are in school, many of them are in universities, in medical schools, in engineering. So we introduced the education loans so that they don't worry about where the money will come from for their higher education. We give scholarships to the children of Grameen families so that their education is applauded by everybody, that they are doing good in the schools. So we are trying to build up the second generation in the family. The first generation, the parents go up to a certain level. But the second generation can make a tremendous move. Getting out of poverty is one thing. Slipping back into poverty is a very common thing because of disasters, because of other problems. So we try to help them in a way so that they don't slip back. And building up the second generation is the best guarantee that the family will not get back into poverty again. We introduced technology, one technology which became very popular and we are very delighted, cell phone. We created a company, cell phone company called Grameen Phone. It's the largest mobile phone company in the country. The idea behind was is to bring mobile phone in the villages of Bangladesh and make the Grameen borrowers the telephone ladies of the village. 
they will sell the service of the telephone and make money. One of the argument always, the critics of microcredit, well, it's good, microcredit is good, but since they are illiterate, ignorant, unskilled, they will always stay with the primitive technology. So this is another demonstration. They got the brand new state-of-the-art technology and mastered it. Today there are more than 50,000 telephone ladies in Bangladesh, all over Bangladesh. You can call anywhere in the world from any village in Bangladesh by going to the telephone lady and make the call and she makes the money. And she makes a lot of money by selling telephone service. In a country where the per capita income is less than $400, a, a typical telephone lady will be earning something like $200 per month in net income. And on the upper side, she can go up to $500 a month. And you can see how the family is moving out of poverty almost every week, step by step, quickly. And who says they cannot master technology? In the beginning, everybody said, well, she would not even know how to push the button because she cannot read it. My argument was, there are only 10 numbers in the whole world. If pushing these numbers bring money, she will learn it in 10 minutes. <laughs> and she did. She did. Today, you talk to a telephone lady, you'll get the impression as if she was born with a telephone in her hand. <laughs> She's so confident. When I asked one telephone lady, do you have problem with uh, pushing those buttons in the early times? When we, she said, why don't you blindfold me and give you a number? If I can't dial it correctly the first time, take my telephone back. <laughs> I was stunned. I was not waiting for that kind of answer. I wish I had all those government officials who challenged me, saying that they are illiterate women, they wouldn't know what to do, they would be scared to death using telephones. We were present at that day when she said that to me. And I felt how easy it is for us to underestimate other people, their capacity, and their resolve. And if you could get over that and believe in the potential of human being and design everything with that as the basis, we would have a world where there won't be any poor person and poverty truly would be in the poverty museum, nowhere else in the world. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Can we have... Thank you very much. We can have some few minutes with the questions, if you would like to have any questions, then I can... Because I couldn't cover many of the aspects. Please.
One of the things that I've been interested in is the effect on health amongst those who participate in the Green Bank. Would you mind saying a few words about that? Yeah. Uh, lots of studies have been done on uh, Grameen Bank ever since we began our journey. Uh, almost every aspect of Grameen Bank have been studied and reports have been published uh, by many universities, many research institutions. One of them is, of course, health. Uh, two things I can mention quickly. One is the nutrition level of the children in Grameen families that have been studied and demonstrated way higher than non-Grameen families in nutrition. Another study reports, this is uh, done by population people. Uh, they show that child mortality has declined by 37% in Grameen families than in non-Grameen families. The other one is about the family planning. Adoption of family planning practices within Grameen families is twice as high as non-Grameen, uh, as the national average. Access to uh, drinking water, uh, because we give loans to buy a tubal and uh, crea uh, create access to drinking water. This is one of our priority items. Uh, so this is also uh, access to drinking water is way high in Grameen Bank. And also uh, sanitary latrine, because we provide financing for sanitary latrine. Actually, it's a condition when you join Grameen Bank, and when a woman joins Grameen Bank, one of the first thing we kind of test her out and her family to dig a hole and use that hole as a latrine because people go out in the open. Uh, they will say that we can't afford to have a toilet or something. We said, oh, forget about toilet. Just dig a hole and use it. And then as you become a Grameen Bank member, one of the first loans we encourage you to take is to set up a sanitary latrine. In our housing loan, Grameen Bank is a big housing loan program too. More than 600 houses 600,000 housing loans have been given to build houses. And a house means a house plus a sanitary latrine attached to it. So which is quite unusual in Bangladesh to have a sanitary latrine attached to your house in the villages. Yeah. So these are uh, all. Then we have a health program as a separate entity, Grameen Health as a company. Just to give an example, we do, under that, we do a cataract operation. Many other things, but cataract operation uh, drew a lot of attention from the local media. Uh, the, we do the cataract operation, including the cost of the lens that we implant, $28. And deliver, done at your home, nearest your home, in a school building or someplace. We gather all the patients together. We spend half a day operating, implanting, transplant, transplant with a very good quality. So, uh, and people get surprised that uh, who considered themselves as blind suddenly see the world as it is. Uh, uh, never thought that they will ever see again. Cataract becomes in a such a worse condition. And others looking, seeing it as a blurred thing, they know that this is, if you look, go in the villages, you'll see old people trying to see things but can't see. So that's cataract operations opens up the whole uh, opportunity. And we see, we have a health insurance program built into it. Uh, briefly, what I would mention, that you pay basically $2 a year, uh, and the entire family is covered under health insurance. Uh, you get uh, dis, dis, uh, medicine at a discounted price, and there's a uh, professional doctor, uh, the trained doctor, right in your village next to you so that uh, if you, any kind of treatment you need, you can do that. 
and also a pathological laboratory attached to it. So this is a health program, uh, which is a separate program delivered, uh, delivering health services with Grameen members and non-Grameen members. Yes, please. In addition to providing credit, how important do you think has been Grameen's role in providing avenues for self-employment? The credit itself creates self-employment. You don't need anybody else to tell anything. Let me explain what I meant. When, I, when a person wants a loan, the loan is sanctioned by the group. There's a five-member group. All five of your friends that you join together, each one is waiting for a loan. Our procedure is, if you want to take a loan, you must propose it to your group. And your group will discuss and finally decide. That may be the same proposal that you came up with, or they will modify and change and finally approve you a loan. So that they understand what is your purpose of the loan and how much you're asking for. Usual question, they will ask, how are you going to make money by taking this loan? So she has to explain, because these are loans for income generating activity. So, so you have to say, suppose I'm just making up a story. Oh, I want to buy a cow. You want to buy a cow? Have you ever raised a cow in your life before? So no. Then how are you going to raise a cow? Do you know anything about it? Well, I used to take care of a cow of a rich family and all work I did. I knew everything about cow, although I never owned a cow myself. So this is an opportunity for me. I'll buy a cow and how are you going to pay back? Well, I'll sell the milk. And how much is the milk price? This is the milk price. And how much a week you're making? How much every week you have to pay back? So all this arithmetic has to work out. And then finally they will say, okay, we approve your loan. Then they will recommend it to the bank and bank gives the money. So, the, so raising a cow is a self-employment. You created your own employment, meaning that you started a, a milk producing factory. <laughs> you sell the milk and make money. And at the end of the year, suppose it's a one-year loan, in the beginning of the year, you had nothing. At the end of the year, you paid back the entire loan with interest, and you have two cattle heads, the cow and the calf. If you repeat that same story next year, you want another cow, another loan, at the end of the second year, you have four cattle heads out of nothing. And now on, whatever milk you sell is entirely yours. You don't have to pay any installment to anybody. And if you want cash, you can sell one of those or two of those and get cash. So this is how the self-employment and improving the asset base begins. Yes, please. That has something to do with the history of what, how we began. Uh, when I was... Uh, struggling with the bankers. I was criticizing them in all kinds of ways. And two criticisms came out very loudly. One, the entire banking system has been designed to keep the poor people out. That's how they invented the collateral. It's a wall so that big number of people cannot come in, only the privileged few will enjoy everything. And then next one, I was saying that not only they reject poor people, they also reject women. So they would be very upset with my second allegation. Because they said, no, we, we don't reject women. I said, well, if you look at all the banks in Bangladesh, and if you look at the gender composition of all the borrowers, if you, if, if you can come up with 1% of the borrowers as women, I will withdraw my allegation. You are doing perfectly all right. But they had no 1%. That was way back, some 28 years back. 
Today, if you ask the same question, I think the answer will still be the same. It won't be still 1%. So when I began, I wanted to make sure in my program, half the borrowers are women. This was a deliberate decision to, so that it's even-handed between men and women. And we did that. It was a hard work because, as I was explaining, women is very difficult to convince, to convince the women to join Grameen Bank because she was so scared. She never handled money in her life. But we did a lot of things in kind of that uh, courage building. And finally, we reached that point of 50-50 after six years of our efforts. Then we start noticing that money that went to the family through women brought so much more benefit to the family than same amount of money going to the family through men. Exactly same amount. And it is so vivid, so obvious. You don't have to be an extra special researcher. <laughs> you see it every day. One family where the mother is the borrower, one family where the father is the borrower. Difference between the two. Children got a lot more attention when the mother is the borrower. Household got a lot more attention when the mother was the borrower. And being a woman in a poor family, a woman has acquired a very special kind of skill, a skill of managing scarce resources. Because her husband brings only a little. And she is responsible for stretching it to cover all the needs of the family. If she cannot do that, you are a bad wife. She has to struggle a lot to handle that. And in the process, she becomes an expert on this. And when we gave her this little money, she, bring, she brought all the skill that she had in managing scarcity resource. And she got the best mileage out of that money. And women always had a longer vision than the men. Men wanted to enjoy right away, whatever benefit, whatever income she, he got. But women always wanted to build a future. So noticing this in concrete ways, I just gave the kind of outline, but in concrete ways, you, you skip noticing. Then we decided that we will give priority to women. We focus on women. Then we did, started doing that. And as a result, pretty early in our work, we had very high percentage, 1995, 95% women. That's the reason. Yes, please. The essentials of uh, Grameen methodology uh, applies equally well anywhere. But it's a question of preparing oneself in applying them. Uh, when I say poor people pay back, you can run out of the room and start giving a loan on the street. Yeah, let's give a loan to them. That won't work. You need a system to develop so that you know exactly what you're doing and the borrower knows exactly what he or she is supposed to do. So that kind of uh, preparation phase is very important. Many of the programs that we saw didn't do well because uh, they had no preparation time. They just went ahead and it's a great idea. We want to spend some money and so on. Today, more, about 116 countries around the world have uh, Grameen type programs working all over in uh, poor countries and rich countries. And as Professor D was mentioning, uh, uh, New York in Harlem, uh, in the US, in many, many other places, in Europe, in England, in France, in Norway, in Sweden, in Poland, uh, now recently in Kosovo, in Bosnia, and so many places. Of course, Latin America and other places. 
So I, at the basic level, I, see, I don't see any difference. But there are diff uh, problems. One is the regulatory framework. Existing law, I mentioned to you that we didn't want to be created under the existing law. So the creating a bank for this doesn't work. It has, now it has to be done through NGOs, non-government organizations. And they do not have the legal authority to take deposits. So you are always dependent on donor fund. Grameen Bank is not dependent on donor fund because it's a bank. It takes deposits and lends money. Its entire 100% of its money comes from the deposits. And bulk of the deposit, at the 70% of the deposits of Grameen Bank comes from the borrower themselves. And the remaining 30% come from non-Grameen borrowers. But entirely it is self-reliant financially. So that is missing. So what we are telling everybody, the two things need to be done. Governments to create a legal framework for microcredit banks. So that small microcredit banks can spring up everywhere, anytime, no problem. And they will take the deposits, lend money to poor people, exactly the same procedure. But then you'll need, since you are taking deposits, you'll need a regulatory body. So we are arguing for creation of um, in microcredit uh, regulatory commission so that they can look at the microcredit scenario. This is a basic, two basic actions to be taken. Until that happens, funds become a problem. So we are arguing for uh, creation of wholesale fund. So that there, within a country you have a microcredit wholesale fund any organization who wants to start a microcredit program can borrow money from the wholesale fund and lend money uh, to, uh, to the borrowers themselves. So that they don't have to go around seeking uh, donors. It's very difficult to deal with donors when you are so small and you're looking for small money. Uh, so in, resolve that uh, in each country. Create a number of wholesale funds so that it becomes easy, it's available. And do it in a business way. It doesn't have to be done in a charity way. Because here, uh, charity is not something which helps you a, a lot. In the beginning, if you don't have money, somebody gives you a kind of endowment fund, that's fine. But you can become absolutely commercial right from the beginning. Like when we open our branches now, we make it very strict. Not a single penny will be given to that branch by head office of Grameen Bank. So you have to find all your money, including the salary, and other cost from the business you do at that particular location. Nothing will come from outside. And it can be done anywhere in the world. So the money is right there. So these are the issues that comes into the picture. So, yes. Okay. <laughs> okay.